study of the Bible enhances community, and that community enhances the study of the Bible. And what that really just means is that we like to gather around Scripture and talk about what it means. Um, and we think that that uh, process brings us closer together and also helps us to understand Jesus more. Okay? So if you think, think about there's lots of options in your schedule. If you need help, come talk to me or talk to Jen, uh, who's sitting up here and doing the PowerPoint. Okay? Um, finally, uh, I didn't, this isn't the bulletin, but I'm going to start making this announcement. We have a thing called Ministry Team. If you're on ministry team, could you stand up? Look at this, like, secret. It's like they're agents, secret agents. You're like, whoa, whoa. Okay, can everyone give a round of applause? Yeah. So there's this custom in football uh, where the quarterback takes the offensive line out and buys some steak. Now, I'm not, not rich like that. I'm not Peyton Manning, so don't ask me to do things like that. But it's really, like... Ministry team is the offensive line of, um, and I mean that not in the offensive way, but in terms of <laughs> guarding the guarding RUF. Um, so, <laughs> but we we really appreciate their work, and this is it's an open ministry team. Ministry team is just basically a way that you can learn how to serve better, to serve the mission of Jesus on this earth, and particularly this campus in New Mexico State. So, if you believe in Jesus. And you believe in what REF is doing. You've been around long enough to do that. And I'm sorry, freshmen, that doesn't include you. Maybe next year. Uh, we love you. But um, ministry team is for upperclassmen, for sophomores and above, for second years and above. Um, come talk to me if you're interested in learning more about ministry team. Uh, we'll start again next semester. Um, so if you want to kind of serve RUF and help out and see what helping out looks like, and prepare yourself for the church or for how to do ministry. It's a great opportunity for that. Okay. Um, finally, I just wanted to kind of go over these these men's and women's nights on Friday. Okay. <laughs> I think it's really important. Last year there was some confusion about the men's night in particular, so I want to clarify from the get-go. Okay. Look, I just want to, can we just set the scene, set the mood a little bit? Um, you guys grew up in the desert. Okay. Who didn't want to become a lumberjack growing up in the desert? Um, a couple people. Okay. That was a, you know what a rhetorical question is where you don't answer it? I'm going to be doing those all night. So, um, anyway. So, look, that's why Friday night we're wearing flannel and we're trying to bring out not only our eyes, but also the scruff of no shave ember. Okay. I think flannel makes it pop, and that's really part of the desire that we're having there. Also, it's really important that you need to wear your flannel finest to IHOP, okay? This has to be like a lumberjack invasion. So if you're involved in, if you're involved in this, this night, don't come in a collar shirt. Don't come in a t-shirt and tell me that you're a man's night. No flapjacks for you. Not just joking. Okay. But I just want to make that clear, kind of. Um, finally, like, what woodsy experience isn't complete without a little bit of fire, okay? <laughs> so the fire part, okay, is we're going to have a fire going. We'll cook things I, I afterwards. Hop. Not at IHOP. Okay? <laughs> at a private property nearby, okay? If you need directions, you can ask me later. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to throw things in that fire. We're going to stay away from the fire. Thank you. And we're going to um, 
really just basically be men, okay, who enjoy flapjacks flannel and fire, because that's all we know, all men enjoy flapjacks flannel and fire. Okay. Sure, that's in the box somewhere. Okay. Look, and for the ladies, I know ladies are sort of like, what? I mean, he's just gone off for like 10 minutes about flannel, flapjacks, and fire. What's for me? Look, chicks and flicks. <laughs> Behold the beauty, okay? It should be fun, right? Um, here's my only complaint. I have one complaint already about chicks and flicks, okay? It's about the title. I had an amazing title that I offered to Jen. You want to hear it? You ready? Sugar Cookie Sleigh Ride Girls Night. How amazing is that? <laughs> Guys, girls. I mean, that captures everything about femaleness. Ticks. Ticks. All right. All right. So let's bring it in. Let's focus a little bit. Now that I've lost everyone. Um, so, large group isn't just about me talking about flannel. Um, we're actually looking at the story behind two particular people in the Bible, Jonah and Elijah. Um, that's why we're calling this semester Tracing the Heart of God. Uh, we're looking at the story behind those two stories, which is the story of God. First, we looked at the book of Jonah and Jonah's story there. And now in part two, which we're deeply in, we're going to talk about um, Elijah in the story in the book of 1 Kings. So we spent some time with these folks for a number of reasons. Among a few are that they're people like us. Elijah and Jonah are people like us, okay? Now, I know we're not prophets in the Old Testament sense of that word, which is the first half of the Bible. But um, they have a lot of the same faults, a lot of the same successes, a lot of the same um, feelings and faithful moments. And further, they also direct us to the story behind their stories, which is God, the God of the universe. And really what Jonah and Elijah do is give us a room with a view to God's heart. Okay? That's where we see up close and personal who God is and how he cares about his children, how he cares about his people. Um, so that's what we're doing. That's why we're doing it. Um, we're talking about Jonah again. We're going to look at 1 Kings 18, verses 41 through 46. Uh, and that's a continuation of our discussion of Elijah. It's the third installment of the Elijah story. Now, the first two episodes of Elijah that we looked at were the showdown. They were just like a summary of the showdown between Baal, a non-god, and the Lord God, the real God. Um, and this was like a street fight. Okay, It was a street, theological street fight. It's hot Mount Carmel. Okay, so there wasn't really a street. But it was a street fight nonetheless. No holds bar, Okay. It was like Elijah, the prophet of God, against 450 Baal prophets, okay? And they said, how are we going to determine this? Of course, fire, okay? Whichever altar lights on fire, that's the real God. That's God showing up. And sure enough, that's what happened. So let me give you the picture. Hosted by Elijah, the 450 Baal prophets, okay? And then the audience was all of the nation of Israel, thousands upon thousands, okay? And the king Ahab. And the winner, by fire falling from the sky, was Elijah, and more particularly, the real Lord God who shows up. So that was super exciting. I don't know how you guys have recovered from the last two weeks, but now we're looking in more particular at the point of all of that. What's occurring now is actually the point of all of that showdown. And these few verses, 
This is the Lord sending rain. Okay? All of that showdown was to prove who exists and more particularly who sends rain. Who's in charge of the rain. Okay? So the fire proved which God is real. The, the, the rain proves the Lord is good. He's not just real, he's good. He's good to his word and he's good to his people. So, with our eyes directed towards the main stage, the main event, rain. Let's take a look at verses 41 through 46, okay? Um, we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 41 through 46. Um, for those looking it up in your Bible, it's in the middle of the first half of the Bible, after 2 Samuel, before 2 Kings. Uh, it's in your bulletin, inside or right, okay? So, you can, could you stand for the reading of Scripture? I'm reading out the English Standard Version translation, okay, which is in your book. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up and say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, when the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Friends, the heavens and the earth will pass away before one letter, one letter of the word of God becomes void. Would you pray with me? Father, um, we need you, uh, of course, to show up. We need you to show up with blessing and gifts for your people. I pray that you would reward our time here. Um, Lord, that you would um, make this ordinary moment extraordinary. That you'd meet us in the rattling of a light and fluorescence that she'd meet us in a room in the middle of the student union, that we would experience what it's like uh, for the heavens to open and for your grace to reign. We ask, Father, that that would change our lives, that we'd feel wet with you, Jesus. And I pray that you would move our hands and our feet to do different things and our minds to think different thoughts and our hearts to beat for a different Savior. For you all the time, Jesus Christ, that's our prayer. In your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <laughs> so, um, some of you may know this about me, maybe not. I went to the same school, very small school, for 13 years. I was called a lifer, okay? Which was kind of like a prison term, but here we are. Um, and if you've been to like a small school, or if you grew up in a small town, or if you were on a sports team, or if you were in a production in school, or you had a group of friends that you were tight with, or you know you had any other sort of small social group, you'll realize that in those kind of settings, everybody knows everybody's business, right? Everybody knows everybody's business, and reputations are made that stick to you. And sadly, not all the reputations that stick are good ones, because not all of the actions that we we do are good. For instance, there's this one guy, a class above me, okay, who made a mistake he would never live down. The story goes like this. He was at a sleepover in middle school, 
junior high, maybe seventh grade. And he's with a bunch of his guy friends. And they were talking about girls and sex and everything that you talk about when you're a guy in junior high. Okay? And I'm sure there was a lot of bragging about what things they did and didn't do with girls, and most of it was totally untrue. Probably 99.9% of it was untrue. Anyway, things got more and more heated. And then this guy all of a sudden pulled down his pants and started humping the couch they were on in front of everybody. Everybody. Okay? There and then. And then the next week at school, of course, the entire school knew about this within less than a day. Word quickly spread, and he was forever known by one title, Couch Boy. <laughs> Couch Boy. Okay? Anytime this kid did anything great or anything bad on the soccer field, Couch Boy. Anytime he did anything great in the dodgeball court, Couch Boy. Anytime he drew attention to himself in any way at a party, whether he was dancing or at a dance, whether he found a girl that he liked, everyone would all of a sudden meow, Couch Boy. It was miserable. Every time, literally, he'd be in a dodgeball game, he'd be the last one standing on one side of the team, and the entire gymnasium would chant, Couch Boy, Couch Boy, Couch Boy, Couch Boy. And every time the chant started, I felt absolutely terrible inside. Horrendous. He was stained by one sin, haunted five, seven, the rest of his years by a failure. He was forever going to be known by one stupid and offensive thing that he did in junior high. We all know folks stained by a moment or a habit. We know Fat Tommy and Slutty Chloe and Bad Shad and Stoner Shelley and Dump Chuck. And it could just be a nickname or it could just be an expectation that everyone has for that person all of the time. And then this person could be you. Every time you go home or you get around certain people, they won't let you live down that one night, that one party where you lost control. Or the way you get excited and you say stupid stuff when you get around certain people. You feel defined by your mistakes and their consequences. And whether or not you've got that public nickname, whether or not you did something as stupid or as public as what that guy did in my school, we can all relate to this feeling of shame, this feeling of being defined by failure, stained by sin. It's a private pornography problem. It's a private pornography problem that you wear like a secret weight. It's the laxatives and the puking and the starving and the filling yourself full that feel like a veil between you and everyone else. It's the secret compulsion to always do something crazy to get everyone's attention or the equally equally secret compulsion to disappear in a crowd of people in plain sight. Surprisingly, this is exactly how we find and where we find King Ahab in our passage tonight. Despite his attempt to blame Elijah for it, the three-year drought in Israel is all his fault, and that's his enduring legacy. His sins with his wife Jezebel have caused mass starvation, mass suffering, and mass death. And the fire contest between the Lord and Baal only proved that point, that this was all on Ahab, all on his shoulders, all his fault, 
for all of Israel to see forevermore. Ahab and his rule is defined by drought. It's defined by the consequences of his sin with Baal, the non-god. And as far as we know, Ahab is not known as the king of the drought or, you know, king of death, as far as we know. But in our passage, the huge consequence of his sins looms large and heavily before him in the very ground beneath his feet. But look at the way that God washes away Ahab's sin. Look at the way that God washes away Ahab's stain. Through Elijah's prayer, pray, pray, let me try that again, prayerful, praying intervention, God shows up yet again and sends rain. Do we see that? A rain that ends the land's drought and washes away Ahab's failures. And Ahab, like all of us, has the choice. He can live out of this new life, this new identity, or he can return to his old one. That's his choice that this passage is presenting. And that's what the rest of of, uh, 1 Kings 19 is going to address. Will Ahab change? Will he live out of the stain washed away or the stain that remains inside? 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 41 through 46, gives Ahab and everyone in this room, every one of us, the choice and a promise. Let's start with the promise. The promise is God's. God will show up with something new, new life. God will show up with something new, new life. That's the promise. And then there's the choice, and the choice is ours. Will we live into this new life, or will we live out of our old life? Will we live into this new life or out of our old life? That's the, that's the choice, that's the question. And really along these lines, the passage breaks down into two parts. In verses 41 through 43, we see how God's promises of new life lead to repentance, or to pray. So we see God's promises of new life lead to prayer. In verses 41 and 43. In verses 44 through 46, we see God's promise fulfilled. He brings the rain, and that leads to a choice. So verses 41 through 43, God's promise and a prayer. Verses 44 through 46, God's fulfillment and a choice. We'll begin with verses 41, 42, and 43, and the promise of new life leading to prayer. If you look at verse 41 with me, you'll realize from the passage from its very beginning links God's promise to show up with new life to rainfall. That's the link. That's what the passage is talking about. But we don't really understand how rainfall or rain is new life because we don't understand how drought is death. So let me try to investigate what that means. How is drought death? We live in a very different age than the 9th century BC when this took place. Okay? Due to modern technology, drought is much less of a big deal to us in America than it has ever been to anyone in the history of the world. We don't get that. For instance, did you guys know that in the state of Texas there has been a severe drought for a year? And the fact that most of us don't even know that shows how little drought has to do with our everyday lives. Drought for the modern American means watering restrictions in their front lawn, not death by starvation, which is what it meant for the ancient Israelites. 
So here, let me give you some perspective, because this is true. I want, us, I want us to see up close and personal what it looks like and what it feels like to be in a famine that is a starvation scenario from drought. Um, and we're going to look at a parallel passage in 2 Kings chapter 6 to see what Israel and Elijah and Ahab were feeling at that moment three years into starvation. So 2 Kings chapter 6, we're going to look at them to read a story. There's a great famine in Samaria, that's the capital of northern Israel, until a donkey head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a quart of dove's dung for, a sh- for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. And the king asked her, What's your trouble? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son, that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Clearly, famine, lack of food, caused by drought is horrible. Horrible. And it causes horrible suffering. Just look at the details. Bird poop for five pieces of silver and cannibalism of children. Cannibalism of children becoming normal practice. And injustice cried not at the cannibalism, but if not at the equal swap of kids. Also, as an aside, because I'm pretty sure you didn't cover this in children's church or youth group, um, this passage in particular, I want you to understand that the Bible is an R-rated document. Okay? That was an R-rated story that you kind of got censored out in the course of your church upbringing, probably, if you're in church, and if you're like me, you didn't have church, and you're like, I didn't know that existed in the Bible. It's an already book, especially in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. Why is the Bible so graphic? Why is it R-rated? This is an aside. Because we live in an already world. And the Bible truthfully depicts our world, whether we want it to or not. Okay. So hopefully this picture of what a drought looks and feels like, that visceral picture that I just gave you that 2 Kings chapter 6 depicts, hopefully that famine gives you that sense of urgency that's going on beneath the passage. You have to understand that people are at the point of eating each other. Okay, that's what's going on with three years of drought in the ancient Near East. This is messed up and very urgent. And that's what is underneath all of verses 41 through 43. But look at Elijah. Instead of being fearful, he's confident, right? He's not sitting there and going, oh no, I'm worried. Look what he says to, to Ahab in verse 41. Go up and eat and drink, for there's the sound of the rushing of rain. Remember, according to this passage, he has not seen a cloud in the sky at all. Even a cloud the size of a man's hand, he's not seen. So he's hearing this, not by his senses, but by faith. How can Elijah have so much faith that God will provide rain, when if we were in that situation, we wouldn't have that faith? How is that possible? What's what's the deal? Is it just because he's a prophet and he has prophet-sized faith? Is that what it is? Is it like in Starbucks terms that our faith is like a 12-ounce tall and his is like, Elijah's faith is like a 31-ounce Trenta? Is that what kind of is going on here? I don't, I mean, I think 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, earlier before this current passage, gives us a better insight why Elijah is so faithful and not so fearful. It's not because he's a prophet, because he has a special promise. This is what 18, chapter 18, verse 1 says. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, 
show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. You see, God's promised that there will be rain. And so Elijah takes God at his word, and his mind is as good as done. It's as good as done that there will be rain. But notice verses 42 through 45, or 43, excuse me, 42 through 43. Elijah doesn't just like get his ancient rain poncho on and go and hang out and feast with Ahab up on the hill. What does he do? He goes and prays. The rain is a done deal, but Elijah isn't done. Why? Why does Elijah pray for the Lord to bring rain? If God has promised the rain, right? Why does anyone need to do anything to make that happen? It's a certain it will happen, right? It's a done deal. Why pray? I appreciate what Dale Roth Davis says about the situation. Yahweh, that is the Lord God, wills to send rain. And he wills that it is his will to come to pass through Elijah's prayer. Let me say it again, because it's a lot of wills. Okay, The Lord God wills to send rain. And he, God, wills that his will will come to pass through Elijah's prayer. Okay. Let me put it another way. Because <laughs> that's a lot of wills. Still, God's end is rain. And the means he uses to achieve this end is Elijah's prayer. Again, Davis. God's will is certain, but he delights to do his will and answer to the prayers of his people. God is not limited to this channel but we might say he highly prefers it. I love that. He highly prefers to use human prayer to do his will. And that's why we pray at all. Think about our prayers, especially those prayers that Jesus commands us to pray. About those things like God has already promised to do. What are we supposed to pray? We're supposed to pray that his kingdom will come. God has promised that his kingdom will come to earth. We ask him to do his will here on earth as he does it in heaven. He's promised to do his will here on earth as he does it in heaven. And we ask him to give us this daily, daily, give us this day our daily bread. He's already promised to give us his day, our daily bread this day. So that's why we pray. Let's look at how Elijah prays. That's why Elijah prays, and that's why we pray. But let's look at how he prays. He's got his head between his knees in sincere humility, and he's privately by himself atop Mount Carmel, the highest point of Mount Carmel. Our text tells us that he prays this way, not once, not twice, but seven times. And each time he sends his servant up to the top of Mount Carmel, fully expecting God to send a rain cloud. It's not like he knew he was going to do seven times, so he kind of half, he got a check swung the first six, and then finally said, okay, I'm going to hit this one out of the park, and did the seventh prayer, a big time prayer. Look, I know we're not Elijah. I've been telling you that the entire series. But we can take a lesson from Elijah and from the saints before us, from the believers before us, Abraham and Moses and David. We can take a, we can take a, a note from Paul and John, John the Baptist, John the Apostle, the early church, and even Jesus himself. And this is the note that we can take from them. All of them plead God's promises to God. All of them plead the promises of God to God. It seems silly or basic, like, right, you're like, of course you would pray God's, God's promises to him. But this has changed my whole view of prayer, honestly. And I think you can see that in this text. 
We ask God to remember his promises, to remember that he can't lie, that he is good, that he is true, that he is faithful, even when we're not. Pleading the promises of God gives us the kind of certainty and persistence that Elijah has at that moment. Why? Because God keeps his word at all of the time. All of the time. Do we get that? That's why he can be so sincere. That's why he can put his head between his knees. That's why he can pray seven times earnestly, and the first six, even when he expects him to show up, he doesn't. He can keep praying, because he knows that God keeps his word all of the time. And he has promised to send rain, and he will send rain. And look, sometimes God answers our prayer immediately with a snap of a finger and it's a fiery, miraculous show. And sometimes, other times, he, does, he takes his dry, barren, drought-filled time until finally he shows up in a process of routine, nature, the season of rain. So hopefully that encourages us to pray when life feels painful, when life feels boring, when life feels confusing. But even as we pray the promises of God, I think we should remember the promise of God for prayer. Right? The promise of God for prayer is Jesus prays for us. He's praying for our prayers. Remember Hebrews chapter 4 and 5, the reading that we had earlier. Jesus is our great high priest. He knows our earthly conditions. He knows our sickness, our, sickness, our sores, our weakness. He knows our temptations, and he knows, that he knows the kindly moments when we surprise ourselves. He knows all of those things, and during his life here on earth, and now in his heavenly reign at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is doing this. Jesus is giving us grace and mercy, but he also has been and is and will continue to be praying for us with supplications and loud cries and tears. Jesus is crying for our prayer. That's amazing to me. And this means that there's a time to earnestly petition God like Elijah, but there's also a time to rest in Jesus' petitions. Right? We can rest in Jesus' petitions, his prayers for us. This is a beautiful balance. We see this beautiful balance as we identify with Ahab again. Ahab's sin is causing the land to literally die. As we speak in this passage, as that passage happened, the land is literally dying of starvation. But Elijah tells what to Ahab in verse 41? Go up, eat and drink. Instead of telling Ahab to get to work, to get off his lazy butt, and go and pray really hard till the rain comes, God tells Ahab to sit down and let him and his servant wash him and his sins clean. That's grace. The stains we carry, the consequences of our big mistakes, the way we act out of our pornography, out of our eating disorders, out of our drug use, out of our alcohol abuse, and out of our overambition, whether it's social or academic, or both. All of those things, Jesus, Jesus is earnestly praying for. He's praying for us to be washed clean of those things. And God the Father is answering that prayer. He's answering that prayer. And the rain isn't coming from the sky. The rain that washes away our sins is coming from the the side of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is the blood of Jesus that washes us clean. Like the rain washed the land back to life. And our passage echoes this fact. God keeps his promise. He keeps his promises. 
We see this in verses 44 through 46 too. The Lord God shows up. He's real. But that's not enough for God. (laughs) We talked about that last week. He shows up. He's real. But He shows up with something. New life. He shows up as something. A life giver. This is what rainfall, verse 44, and following represents. It nourishes the ground, right? It leads to grain, it leads to food, it leads to life. But it also washes away the stain of Ahab's sins. The rain washes away the dry death he's caused. And it also represents a fresh start, a new life. Look, whether we know it or not, when we sin, we're living out a part that has been crafted for us by our previous sins. We sin because we think sin is who we are. We sin because we think that's who we have to be. But just like Ahab doesn't have to follow a false god and kill thousands of people, he doesn't have to do that. We don't have to be couch boy anymore. We don't. Verses 44 and following are telling us you are no longer defined by a moment. You are no longer defined by a habit. You're no longer defined by a set of family or friend expectations. You aren't defined by your mistakes. I'm not defined by my mistakes. And we're also not defined by our successes. We're defined by Jesus Christ and his success. We're defined by faith and his renewing love for us. Let me kind of paint a picture of what that looks like. I read this huge novel a year ago. It's called War and Peace, and it nearly killed me. Okay. Now, you have to know something about me. This is not something to boast in, but this is also... I want you to think, if you like, think that's really cool, you should think less of me. And if you think that's really lame, you should think more of me. Okay, there we go. Because here's what I'm going to tell you about. This is the longest book I've ever read in my entire life. Okay, it's super long. And really, my paperback edition had the smallest type I've ever seen published. It was like four-point font. I mean, I had like a magnifying glass out. It took me like an hour to read a page. It was ridiculous, ridiculous. And I remember at the time reading the second epilogue. Second epilogue. He's written a thousand pages. These two epilogues? Anyway, I was reading the second epilogue, and it wasn't even about the characters and about the plot. It was about how we write history and understand history. He was waxing philosophical in a novel. In a novel. And I was like, Tolstoy, please, make it stop. Anyway, nonetheless, I want you, this book has really actually got wonderful moments. It's got so many characters and so many stories but there's this really beautiful moment, this really beautiful character. Uh, the character's name is Natasha. She's a young girl who becomes a beautiful, spontaneous woman. And she gets engaged to this other character named Prince Andrew. And the wedding's delayed. Uh, the parents of Andrew are not happy. And so he has to go and leave Moscow, where they're both in love, and go and take care of business in the family home front. And this leaves Natasha vulnerable to the seductions of a nasty man named Anatole. I don't know if you knew this, but like every 19th century novel was about a woman getting seduced. I, don't, I mean, I don't know why that is. English majors, help me out. Anyway, okay. So Anatole, with the help of his sister Helene, tricks Natasha somehow this party into kissing him and then receiving a bunch of love letters. And Natasha thinks she's just damaged goods. She thinks, I'm dumb. She's convinced in her failure that she's in love with Anatole. So she's got this wonderful husband-to-be away abroad, fighting battles for her and his family. And she thinks, I've messed up. This is who I'm supposed to marry. 
And so she thinks, I'm going to run off of Anatole. I'm going to run off of him. Everything's ruined anyway. Why not just ruin my family and my reputation as well? I'm just going to go alone. Natasha is so full of shame and self-hatred that even, she even calls Anatole her master and she calls herself a slave. It's really only later in the, in the book, hundreds of pages, uh, that, <laughs> that Natasha fully comes to herself. She realizes that someone loves her as God loves her, and it changes the very way she sees herself. This is how Tolstoy narrates the scene. So they've been talking about, um, spoiler alert, uh, the dead fiancé, Andrew. Andrew died. They never got together. Sorry. Um, cry a little tear with me. Natasha says this, though, Okay, when she's talking about her dead fiancé. I, too, wish nothing but to relive it all from the beginning. That is, I just want to start over. I just want to live a new life. I wish I could just re- hit the rewind button and live again. But Pierre looks intently at her. Yes and nothing more, cries Natasha again. It's not true. It's not true, cries Pierre. I'm not to blame for being alive. I'm not to blame for wishing to live, and neither are you. Neither are you. Suddenly, Natasha bends her head, covers her face with her hands, and begins to cry. And then a little bit after, we read, something hidden and unknown to herself, but irrepressible, awoke in Natasha's soul. To her own surprise, a power of life and a hope of happiness rose to the surface and demanded satisfaction. Look, I'm not a Russian scholar, not a Russian literature scholar, but I think what's going on here is Pierre loves Natasha in such a real, as-is way that it changes who Natasha is. She no longer thinks of herself as damaged good. And this is just a mere reflection of the way that Jesus offers to love us and all of his life and all of his kindness and all of his love. Like Natasha, when we mess up, we don't need to hit the rewind button and start over and live our lives again the way we wish we'd lived them. In Jesus Christ, there's no blame for being alive. There's no blame for wishing to live. If you lean into this love of God with all of your baggage, all your nicknames, all your former and present ways of life, Jesus will love you clean. He'll love you clean. He gives us the life and the hope and the happiness. In in one word, in one phrase, new life. That's what he offers to all of us. And Elijah, in the end of this passage, highlights that opportunity for Ahab. This is a man who has been passive. He has let Jezebel, his wife, run his life into the ground. She has erected altars to false gods. She has torn down altars to the true God. She has killed prophets by the thousands. And he sat idly by. He watched 450 of his prophets get slaughtered in the brook of Kidron. And he sat passively by. And what does Elijah do? He enters into that scene in verses 45 and 46, and he runs ahead of the chariot. Now, that means nothing to us. We think this is like, what in the world? He's in a foot race and he's winning? I don't get this. But what's going on in the ancient Near East is a person who is an outrunner, that is a person running before the chariot, is a servant. He's putting himself in the service of this wicked man and saying, we're on the same side. If you choose to believe in God, if you choose to believe that he has wiped away the consequences of your sin, we can work together and heal this kingdom. 
heal this nation. Elijah has a hopeful position out in front of the chariot. He's hoping that Ahab has seen the goodness of the Lord, and he's hoping that Ahab decides to serve God by God's words. To take the reins and turn the nation back towards serving God. This is the moment of Ahab's choice. He has to offer a new life, literally running ahead of him. Or he can follow the course of events back to the summer palace at Jezreel, back to his bedroom with Jezebel, and lay in the old bed of sin. That's his choice. Run ahead or lay down. Are you going to be a man that lays down your entire life, Ahab, or are you going to be a man that runs ahead? That's the choice for all of us. These verses are a hopeful choice for all of us. Will we lean into Jesus Christ ahead of us? Or will we return to the old script that's been playing in our life for too long? Look, I'm talking to all of us. This isn't just a one-time choice, altar call thing. This isn't just you come up front and tell me that you you believe in Jesus. I want you to do that. Please believe in Jesus if you don't believe in Jesus. But this is for everyone. Change starts now for all of us, including me. Will we, Christian or not, live by faith? Will we live the life of love that Jesus gives? Will we take the reins of our lives and give them over to Jesus? Or will we let sin continue to pull us around by the collar? That's a choice that all of us have. Look, it's getting late. I'm tired, you're tired. I have another illustration, but I'm cutting. And here's the deal. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the fact that things are hard. There seems like there's no hope. For some of us, for some of us, we think this this whole message has been totally irrelevant. And we think that's just the person next to me. Sad for that. But hear this. God promises that love will show the way. Love will show the way. Will you prayerfully and faithfully follow this love? Will you choose to live new and not old? Will you choose to run ahead and not lie in the best? Would you pray? Father, uh, I, I thank you uh, for this word and this message about drought and rain and, and about Ahab and about us and about Elijah and Jesus. And I pray that um, as convoluted as it was, that you make it clear. As um, boring as it was, I pray that you make it exciting. I pray, Father, that your word would get needed into our hearts and would liven, liven us. And I pray that we'd make choices and that we would know the choices. That It's a, it's a beautiful choice, not a fearful choice. I pray that we'd make it. And if we're not Christian, I pray that we become Christian. And I pray if we are Christian, I pray that we continue to recommit our lives by faith this moment and the next moment and forever until eternity. That's my prayer. That's our prayer. Lord, you hear our prayers, whether it's one time or seven. We ask for your grace, your mercy. We thank you, Jesus, that you're praying for us even now. In, your, in Jesus, your name, we pray. Amen.